Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And me, Rory Stewart. And we're recording this on Tuesday morning, ahead of Boris Johnson telling ever whatever new or old lies he's going to tell to Parliament. So we'll kind of park that for now. Uh, We want to talk about Rwanda. We want to talk about the role of religion in politics, particularly in the light of the Archbishop of Canterbury's excellent Easter sermon. I'm very keen to talk about this Russian fascist intellectual uh, Dugan or Dugin who apparently has huge influence on Vladimir Putin and if there's time I want to talk about a new book about the Oxford set Rory that has taken control of uh, the United Kingdom and we're going to try and get through as many of your brilliant questions as we possibly can. I want to kick off Rory a bit of sort of you know reaction to last week. I can tell you we have had our first prime ministerial endorsement it is Eddie Rama, Prime Minister of Albania, who says that ours is the best political podcast around. I had a phone call from Delia Smith, none other than, who said, you, as me and Rory, need to start a new movement, not party, she said, a new movement based on collaborative leadership. I have to tell you that Neil Kinnock has been back in touch, not impressed by Rory's explanation as to why he's a Tory. How is it that he was a member of the Labour Party when I, Neil Kinnock, was leader, but wasn't tempted to be a member of the Labour Party when Tony was leader, who you'd have thought was maybe a bit more, a bit closer to Rory's politics? And he asked the question whether Rory Stewart is fearful of winning. Interesting. Michael Barber was in touch. He and I had some exchanges. We talked about him last week in relation to his work in Punjab. And he had a very, very, very interesting and serious point to make. He said he think that the death of the delivery unit approach, not just in the UK, but in different parts of the populist world, is, is becoming a real problem. For example, in relation to COP and the environment, he said governments made great big pledges, but very few actually have a, a process by which they judge them uh, through. And most importantly of all, Rory, I haven't yet, yet watched June, but I have watched the clips where there is bagpipe music, because would you believe, small world and all that, one of the pipers is Finlay MacDonald, my bagpipe tutor. How about that? That's brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Now, we, we need to get you to watch June and get your commentary, not just on the pipe. Um, just to loop back on some of these amazing things that you've just produced. Um, firstly, why on earth do you think the Albanian prime minister is interested in us and nattering on about British politics? Well, because partly because we don't just natter about British politics, also because he's very interested in British politics, uh, but also, full declaration, he's quite a good friend of mine because I've worked with him ever since he was leader of the opposition in Albania. Tell me a little bit about him. Who, who is this guy? He's, he's, he's probably the tallest head of government in the world. He's a, for, <laughs> he's a former basketball player and he's an artist called Eddie Rama. You probably remember... When Tirana, he was mayor of Tirana and Tirana became very well known for all the bright colours. And that was because he was actually getting, he was giving the locals, a bit like some of your projects, he was giving them paint and paintbrushes and they were doing up the the, the city. He's a massive um, 
modernizer. Uh, he, he, he based, we, we based the first campaign very much on new labor campaigns. Uh, he's a really, really interesting guy. Very, very smart. He's now in, he's, he's, he's won three elections like Tony. Um, and Albania, honestly, I tell all my friends, you know, if you want a really good holiday in a really interesting place with good food and nice weather and really nice people and a feeling of a country that's going places, then, then Albania is a good place to go. Um, but just, just on, just on that one, he, he's got huge problems, right? I mean, Albania is a kind of byword for, I'm afraid, for crime, corruption. I mean, what on earth is it like? It must be very, very difficult running a place like that where there are serious, serious mafiosi activity, serious smuggling across the Mediterranean, serious threats to his life. Yeah, but the thing is, Rory, that, that it underlines the fact you who follow this stuff pretty closely says that it underlines just how hard it is to change these ingrained images of countries. The first thing I'd say is when you go to Albania, and I've been to Tirana and all sorts of other parts of Albania, you don't feel unsafe. Um, the second thing I'd say is he has done some amazing things in relation to corruption. For example, one of the first things he did as prime minister was take, literally just take down some of the buildings that had been illegally built that were being used by organized crime. Judicial reform they've been good on, police reform they've been good on. Um, and interestingly, I was talking to the mayor of Tirana, who used to be part of Eddie's team in opposition, a guy called Arion Veliad, who was actually over in, in London recently. And he was saying, oh, my God, some of the things that your politicians have been getting up to, we would not be able to get away with it in Albania. <laughs> so, and I'm telling you, so, you know, they are now looking at us as having corrupted politics. And I think, you know, you're seeing this around the world, people around the world who used to look at our politics as a byword for democracy and honesty and integrity and parliamentary rule and the rule of law. I'm afraid that on the watch of your former party with your former uh, colleague, fellow Old Etonian, fellow Oxfordian, we're the ones that are now being looked at in that way. Just putting putting aside the little provocation there, um, do you do you enjoy working in in places like Albania? Does it, I mean presumably there's a kind of um, satisfaction about being involved in a country that's changing so quickly and that has that degree of challenges. I mean it can feel in Britain as though we're quite slow moving, things can feel quite stale. Whereas in Albania, presumably economic growth is very very quick at the moment. Country's coming from a very difficult place. Mm. Do you find there's a real excitement in working in those kind of places? I've, I, I do. I mean, I, look, I'm somebody who, who, when I'm working, particularly in political projects, I, I'm not good at working with people that I don't get on with. Um, I've, I have to feel that sense of teamship and camaraderie and so forth. And by the way, we've talked before about my book on winners. I mentioned I did a profile of Eddie based upon what he learned from being a sportsman, an international sportsman as a basketball player, that he took into politics. And, and I think what that did whole he thing, learn? Well, that thing about, about teamship and understanding the different roles that people have to play. And I think also, you know, how you handle setback, how you deal with setback. The thing about sport is you're, you know, unless you're, you know, kind of Floyd Mayweather, who's never lost a fight, you're always dealing with failure and defeat. And, and how, do you, how do you put that into shape? And the, the answer to your question is, yes, I love it when I feel that I can really make a contribution to somebody who's on the same wavelength. And the reason, it's a very interesting story how we first started working together I got a message on social media from his press guy, Endry Fuga, who just said, look, you know, we're in opposition. We're up against a deeply corrupt government. They're really bad people. They've stolen a election after election. Um, we've read your diaries, really think you could, you could help us. And I did the classic sort of, you know, very busy, lots to do. Sorry, but give me a shout next time you're in London. They virtually arrived next day. And I just really, really, really liked them. I liked their passion. I liked what they wanted to do. I liked the fact, and we ended up, I ended up, um, the, uh, the, the, the only stipulation I made is that when they did that, we did a kind of classic rebranding of the party under the message Renaissance, which was a little bit like sort of new labor. And they wanted to change the color from deepest red. Um, so I can tell you, Roy, that if you go to Albania and you go to the Socialist Party headquarters, if you notice a similarity between the colours of the Labour Party and Burnley Football Club, you wouldn't <laughs> be, you would not be wrong. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. Now, moving on to more serious stuff, Rwanda. Uh, Albania we, is serious. No, no, I'm sorry. I'm very serious, but, but we're just, <laughs> just shifting, shifting onto a new subject. Yeah. Um, 
And actually, I, I'd, I'd like to come back to just to park for future podcasts. I'd love to talk about this, this question of political consultancy and supporting other people and, and how you differentiate yourself from others. But let's park that. Let's do Rwanda for a second. So Priti Patel has announced, as far as we can see, that in future, anyone claiming asylum in Britain, unless they've come through a designated route, which seems to mean at the moment, unless they are a Ukrainian or part of the non-existent Afghan scheme. So anyone else claiming asylum, doesn't matter. They could have turned up Somali woman turning up on a student visa claiming asylum or somebody crossing the channel in a boat will be moved automatically to Rwanda. And I think the key point here is not for processing their claim in Rwanda. They will simply be left in Rwanda. And it will be up to the Rwandan government whether or not to grant them right to remain. But they are never coming to Britain through that route. What was your first instinct when you heard all this? Well, first of all, I thought it was really interesting that you and I had been talking about Rwanda uh, over a couple of weeks, you having been there, and then we had a sort of interesting reactions from people about how we talked about them. And then suddenly it becomes the country that everybody's talking about. My first reaction, to be absolutely frank, was this is all about politics. The only bit where I think it might be deemed to be a little bit about policy is in relation to the deterrent factor. Would people who were desperately trying to get to the UK think twice if they thought, actually, as soon as we get there, we're going to be put on a plane to Rwanda? But when you, for example, when you said, Roy, that you know everybody, anybody who comes here will go to Rwanda, I mean, they don't have the capacity for it. This is about signalling. And this, this, to me, is classic populism. It's about trying to divide people. It's about trying to get people like you and me jumping up and down and saying this is inhumane. It's about trying to provoke the Archbishop of Canterbury into saying what he said, so that they can say, as they now are saying, you, 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 you lot haven't got any solutions. And so I think that, um, I think it, I'm afraid it's straight out of the populist playbook. And the fact is, you, Priti Patel has, you know, they, 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 they won the referendum and they won an election largely on, you know, immigration and we're going to take back control of our borders. And they haven't really succeeded in doing that. And I think this is just a bit, a bit desperate, frankly. And I also think there's something, there is something deliberately horrible about what it is that they're trying to do. And on the one hand, they're saying it's on deterrent. On the other hand, they're saying it's a great country to go and, and people shouldn't have any worries about it, et cetera, et cetera. But what about you? You're, you're kind of closer to the, the Tory heartbeat than I'll ever be, thank God. What, what, what was your reaction? Well, l let me start with the fact that what I'm much closer to than you is not the Tory heartbeat, which I think you have more instincts for than I do, but Rwanda itself, right? So I, I think my first uh, thought was being in a refugee camp in Rwanda two weeks ago. So I was in a refugee camp for Congolese refugees coming to Rwanda. And it was one of the most desperate things I've seen because there was no life for them in Rwanda. They're not locked in that refugee camp. They can theoretically, whenever they want, leave and try to establish a life. But it's almost impossible for them to establish a life in Rwanda. Mm. Uh, Rwanda is a very, very heavily populated country, uh, in some ways quite a traditional country. And most of the refugees I spoke to found it almost unimaginable to move to a Rwandan village, couldn't really imagine buying land or setting themselves up or getting a little mm. house. And so they'd been stuck for more than 10 years, essentially in accommodation where they were being fed by the World Food Program and where they were receiving free education for their children, right, which was the main reasons they were kept in. But there was simply no hope for them. They were dreaming about trying to return to the Eastern Congo but aware that they would never be able to do that. Now, fast forward to the kinds of, well, my, my friends from Afghanistan who've tried to make this kind of journey from Afghanistan to Britain and the kind of people I saw in Greece three, four years ago and that whole route. So if you think about it from that point of view, they, you're an, let's say you're a 17-year-old from Kabul, might be from Kurdistan. You make it all the way across Iran. You make it all the way across Turkey. You make it to Greece on a boat. You do this incredibly difficult route up through the Balkans, real problems trying to get around Hungary, get around Serbia. You cross over eventually to Britain and on the back of a truck or in a small boat, and then you're picked up and you're dropped in Rwanda. Uh, and you've paid a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. You've paid people smugglers thousands of dollars to do this route. That's the way you do it, $5,000, $10,000 to make it to Britain. And also, Rory, can I just jump in? You're not, you're not being dropped in Rwanda 
for processing, it is a one-way ticket. The government was was really obfuscating and gaslighting in relation to that. This is about sending them there, not with a view to them coming back. So the processing point is, frankly, yeah, irrelevant. Yeah, 100%. You're just dropped in Rwanda. And you're dropped in Rwanda, presumably, with no money. And you're dropped in Rwanda, and your parents and your family who are in Afghanistan, who are worried about you, you, you talk to them, they've paid $1,000, they've gone to debt to try to set up a new life for you in Britain. And suddenly you're in the middle of Africa. Mm. What are you going to do? The answer is you're going to go in debt to another people smuggler to get yourself smuggled now, this time, all the way up through the Sahel and Mali to Libya. You're going to cross into Italy and you're going to try to smuggle yourself back into Britain again. Mm. By the way, the point you made about overpopulation, I, I hadn't really thought about that. But of course, that was when, 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 when you had the genocide in um, Rwanda, that was said to be one of the factors was the was the, the chronic overpopulation already there now you can see it from in a set you know, the rwanda from their perspective especially given they've had a pretty rough ride on human rights and all sorts of other things for them to get this endorsement from the british government and to get cash payments alongside it but i think they'll have done their homework on the british government as well they'll know this is a government that announces these schemes and then just doesn't really follow through on how they go. So they won't, the government, Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson, won't be giving a damn about whether there is the capacity for the processing or whether these people will eventually end up, you know, in work, out of work. They paint this mythical vision of this modern... I mean, honestly, to hear them the other day and their sort of rent-a-quote sycophant MPs, you'd think that Rwanda would become some sort of, you know, economic miracle in the middle of nowhere that they latched upon to send these people. Yeah. Well, it's very odd the way that relationships with countries work. So in the case of Rwanda, there's this deep relationship with the Conservative Party, which goes back to Andrew Mitchell and David Cameron taking Conservative MPs out to volunteer in Rwanda. Mm. It was part of their commitment to international development aid. Uh, so Conservative MPs would go out, spend two, three weeks helping volunteer in a school in Rwanda. And that was right through the late 2000s before the 2010 election. Yeah. And Kagami's kept this very close relationship. And I think for him, you're right, there is £130 million in it for him. And aid to Rwanda have been cut very heavily, down to £20 million, So that's nearly six-fold increase in aid. But it's also that he himself was a refugee. And he's very proud of what Rwanda's done to deal with refugees. And he will see this, from his point of view, as a sign of respect from Britain, that Britain thinks Rwanda is a safe place to move people and that this is the, this is the correct uh yeah, this will be part of his branding in the yeah. run-up to the fact it's about to be, they've just joined the Commonwealth and they're about to have the Commonwealth House of Government meeting is about to arrive and the Prince of Wales is about to arrive and Boris is about to arrive and everyone's going to be in Rwanda. So we better brace for another big lot of Rwandan stories, which are going to be coming, uh, in a few months time. Yeah. What did you, what did you make of, um, the Archbishop's sermon? Well, let me, just, just before I come to that, I'm really interested in that. But can I just quickly say I've been reading your diaries and I wanted to get you on asylum mm -hmm. because it's very striking how much in your diaries. I picked up in volume three, says he geekly, 76 references to asylum. Right? It was obviously the big thing. And one of the fascinating things is that Jack Straw seems often to have been saying the kind of things I'd want to say about asylum. He's making in-principled arguments He's saying how much asylum seekers contribute to the British economy. And Tony Blair's absolutely livid with him, saying he doesn't get the point. He's got to get real. And, and you are absolutely obsessed with trying to outmaneuver the Tories on asylum, sound tough on asylum, sound effective on asylum seekers. And, and it dominates everything for nearly 18 months, again and again and again, when you're not fighting Peter Mandelson lying about Hinduja and the visas or John Prescott in dodgy trouble for his flat. You're worried about asylum seekers. Now, Rory, about I, Rory, I hope this is not an attempt to sort of equate some of the minor difficulties we had on the moral and ethical front with the wholesale lying, gaslighting and corruption of these lying, crooked charlatans that we have now, um, because I would defend every single one of them against this lot. Um, no, I think you'd be wrong to say it was dominating everything. Um, I mean, volume three, what's that? That's 2000 and no, 90, 99 to 2001. It, it so takes you through. It takes you through the election. Takes us up to the second, the second yeah. election, yeah. 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 And I think it was definitely politically becoming a bigger problem. Uh, I can remember Margaret McDonough, who was the general secretary at the Labour Party, coming in and, and saying that you know, particularly in places like 
you know, some of the seaside towns and Kent and that it was becoming a really big issue. But I'm glad that you said we were looking to be more effective than the Tories. And I think that, look, one of the reasons, Jack, to be fair to him, I think did want to make that argument. And I think coming from the, you know, representing a seat like Blackburn, where he was very conscious of some of the racial tensions that exist and the, and the need for people to welcome people and assimilate. Um, Tony was always of the view, and I think still is of the view, and I think thinks this is the answer now again, that actually identity cards was the ultimate way to deal with this problem that we had to have the reason why the french find it easier to seemingly to deal with this and why we people seem to find it relatively easy to work their way into the into the underground economy in the uk is because of the the lack of identity cards can i just challenge you sorry for a second on that because i don't quite see how that works if you arrive in britain you could arrive without a passport and claim asylum i mean having an identity card doesn't make much difference sorry you were talking about asylum and immigration Sorry, I, I, on that I was talking about immigration, but I think even on this, you're talking about you could, if you came here, you had your case properly processed, and if you were granted asylum, then you were given the rights that that, that go with that, and that at that stage you would be you would be able to get an identity card. So, so what, what would what would what would you or Tony Blair have done if you'd had what's happening now, which is more and more people crossing the channel in boats? Is it not right that David Blunkett, in fact, had? Proposed the idea of processing people offshore. Yeah, you said that. I got you, you sent me a message about that, but I, that that was news to me. So I don't. If that's the case, I don't recall that, and I don't recall that being a debate. Look, I think there's no doubt. I think there's a there's a difficult thing here. I I define the difference between the approach that we were trying to take and the approach this lot are trying to take. The difference to me is what we were looking for genuine solutions to address a problem. Whereas I think what these guys do is try to exploit and exaggerate the problem for their own political purposes. And I really feel that that's the approach that they take. Do, do you agree, though, that there is potentially a problem? I mean, there are, I yes. guess there are a couple of questions you might ask. One of them is asylum in its origins is set up to deal with people who are obviously fleeing genuine risk of persecution. Mm-hmm. And the other side of the argument here would be to say that people who are in France are safe. People who've made it to France do not have uh, grounds to argue that they are in serious risk of persecution and that they need to be given asylum in Britain if they're already in France. What do you make of that? Well, one of the many, many myths that is peddled about this is somehow that France is busy there shipping as many people out of France into the UK as they can. France takes more asylum seekers than we do. That's a different issue, though. No, I know, I know. But my point is, so my point is that... The, the sense that we are given by Nigel Farage wandering around with his binoculars and by the, the media giving this as much coverage as they do, they talk, when they talk about an invasion, these are numbers. They, if you project them in the way that they're projected, giving the count every day on the news and so forth, you can get a sense that this is a far bigger problem. I accept it's a problem, but my point is I think they exaggerate it for political but, effects. But when, you, when, you're, when you're in a diaries... And Tony tries to say, listen, it's not as much of a problem as people point out. Why don't we go and say it's not a problem? You, as the communications director, are quite understandably saying, no, 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 get real. The yeah, media all this. think this is a problem. If the voters all think this is a problem, yeah, it's not I'm, good enough, not good right. enough just going out there saying, which is what Tony Blair's tempted to in one of your conversations. Yeah. Oh, well, it's not really a problem if you look at the statistics. Okay. Well, my, my, but I'm speaking to you here now as your fellow podcast host, not as somebody right. who's in Downing Street. That, right. In fact, you're making my point for me. I was saying we had to find a workable, practicable solution to what was a problem. Tony was, in a sense, at that point, if I remember the conversation rightly, rightly saying that this is up, not up there on the scale with what we're trying to do in schools, what we're trying to do with education, all the other stuff that we've got to keep focused on. Therefore, let's just explain to people the extent of the problem. And I was saying I didn't think politically that was possible. Yeah. I think we were both right. Good. As ever. Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> well, I like the Archbishop of Canterbury a lot. And, and, I, and I've, I've been very lucky in a way. I don't know why, but I've actually... I know him reasonably well because we've talked about one of my favorite, when I used to do a monthly interview with GQ, one of my favorite interviews, if people want to see it, I put it on my website yesterday. Um, I did an interview with, with him about five or four or five years ago. And we've got a shared interest in mental health. We're both depressives. Uh, we've, we've got a shared interest in prison reform. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he's very keen on, on prison reform. He's very interested in foreign policy as you and I are as well. And, what I found extraordinary about his 
the reaction to his sermon was this line, and again, it's the one thing the Tories do. They just tell all their MPs to say the same thing. They tell the Mail and the Express to say the same thing. And it's like, what right does he have to interfere in politics? And they're almost saying, they're almost saying, what right does he have to talk about what God might think? What right does he have to talk about Jesus? So you've got these charlatans like Oliver Dowden and Rhys Mogg, Easter Sunday tweet, cut and paste, Alleluia, Alleluia, Christ is risen. But the Archbishop of Canterbury shouldn't be allowed to talk about these issues. And the Mail and the Express yesterday, Furia, Welby rant. It was actually a very, very measured sermon. And I, I'm an atheist, as you probably know, um, but I'm very, very interested in faith. I think the Bible is one of the most extraordinary books ever written. And I've had, I've been lucky enough to talk to the Archbishop of Canterbury about, <laughs> about what the Bible, he even asked me to write a chapter in a book he produced about, about what Christmas means. Or well, was it Easter or Christmas? I can't remember. And <laughs> he, um, I know there's a difference. You, you, but, get, you, know. you, get, you get a bit blurred on that. I noticed I got a lot of emails from you on Easter Sunday. It didn't seem as though you were spending much time on your knees. No, I didn't spend any time on my knees other than praying for, for Burnley's survival. Um, I think that, but, but what I think is I am so glad when you think about it, we've got a parliament that is failing to speak truth to power in the way that it should. We've got a government undermining the rule of law. We've got a media that is largely supine and craven, ventilating lies and, and injustice rather than exposing it. And along comes the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, a, a figure of moral and spiritual leadership, and he speaks truth to power. Well, you know, we need more of it, not less. My view on this. Firstly, I'm a big fan of the Archbishop of Canterbury, obviously. Um, although some might say it's predictable that you and I are big fans of the Archbishop of Canterbury because we kind of agree with him on a lot of things. He's my favourite Etonian. Your favourite Etonian, dear. And I feel insulted now. <laughs> um, second thing. <laughs> You're runner up. Second, second thing is I think there is an issue which is worth thinking about, which is the relationship between religion and politics. Mm -hmm. And when a senior churchman chooses to intervene and when not. And I was, I was reading uh, Eben Burke this morning as I, my pretentious drop into the conversation. He gets really, really angry in his book on the revolution of France because there's a priest holding forth on politics. Mm -hmm. And he says, politicians and priests are completely different beasts. And the problem with politicians talking about religion and priests talking about politics is none of them have any idea what they're talking about. And they tend to misunderstand the whole thing. So there is a reason to be cautious. But I think the key point that he made, and the reason why I actually back what he said in the sermon, is that he was making an ethical point, not a political point. And the ethical point he was making is that we cannot outsource our problems, that we have to take moral responsibility. And that the really most unpleasant thing about this is that we are essentially making it somebody else's problem. We're making it Rwanda's problem. And then when all these people are inevitably people smuggled back into Europe, we're making it Europe's problem. Yeah. I thought there was, there was a couple of, um, among the questions we had, Owen Trotter, this is an interesting observation, actually. He said, it's likely the Rwanda policy is of Australian origin. I think he's thinking Scott Morrison and Linton Crosby and designed to be part of culture wars. How should the opposition uh, and those few Tories who've got sort of values, etc., oppose this performative nastiness without playing into Johnson Patel hands. And then somebody who calls himself on Twitter, Tories out, please. So I think we know where he's coming from. He says, is Rwanda policy to whip up the Tory base vote for the local elections or a distraction from Partygate? Um, I mean, I do think that many, many people, and maybe it's the sort of people who listen to our podcast, but I do think a lot of people will see this as purely political as opposed to a genuine attempt to resolve a problem. And I think that's probably one of the things that, that provoked Justin Welby. I also, I also really hope Justin Welby and other church leaders at some point do speak about this issue of what it means to our culture and our values and our morality when we have somebody in parliament who, who, who has no real relationship with the truth. I think these are, these are ethical issues. They are the issues that uh, the, the religiously, that's what they're there for. And I speak as somebody who I describe myself as a pro-faith atheist. I, I, I like religion. I'm interested in religion. It's just that I don't have it myself. Let's just take, take, take that question that you threw out. How would you respond? I think to respond to this depends, depends on who your audience is. But if you've got the time and you were talking, let's imagine I was talking to 
my constituency party. So let's imagine I had 350 people in a room and I had an hour to talk this through, which of course is luxurious, very difficult to communicate in that way to the public. I'd probably begin by saying that we have to acknowledge what asylum is there for, remind people of the Second World War, remind actually the fact that the reason why asylum exists is that when German Jews left Germany and entered Switzerland, they were turned back and thrown back into Germany where they were killed. And that's why we set up these agreements in the 50s and again in the 60s. Second thing I think is that we would have to acknowledge that there is a problem around people crossing the Mediterranean or crossing the channel in boats where they are dying. Have to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. And I think we also have to acknowledge the fact that there are hundreds of millions of people around the world who would like to move to the United States or Europe. And that is going to be a growing issue. And I think the third thing we'd have to acknowledge is that there is an element of randomness about the people who actually managed to make it on that boat across the shores. I'm particularly worried, for example, about female judges in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. You're a 50-year-old female judge in Afghanistan who prosecuted the Taliban. You're not going to be able to do what those young men are doing with people smugglers right the way across Europe and on a boat. It's very, very difficult to do that, which is why many of them are young men. Not all of them. I mean, I've seen, obviously, families with young children and terrible tragedies around that, but many of them are young men because it's an unbelievably brutal journey. Yeah, and also, by the way, just because they're young men does not make them economic migrants. Some of them may be. This line that Johnson peddled, that we know that most of them are economic migrants, what he's trying to do is persuade the public that if you're a young man traveling on your own, it means you're an economic migrant rather than yeah, that you're genuinely yeah, fleeing persecution. But also, I mean, the, the, the thing is very difficult because I, I know many young Afghan men who've made this journey. Yeah. Some of them I knew in Kabul. And it is important to, to try to be honest about this. I'm very, very, very pro a good asylum policy. I think the British government is incredibly stingy. We're a long way behind Canada, long way behind the US, long way behind France and Germany. But there's something a bit dangerous about just getting smug about this, because there is, of course, truth in the fact that I do know young Afghans, of course, who come from relatively wealthy middle class families who've put together sometimes twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000, which a poor person can't do. And the reason they're doing it and the reason they're not stopping in, in France or Germany is they want to come and form a life in Britain. And one of the reasons they're doing it is they want to have a better life. And I completely understand why some would want to do that. But they're not necessarily people who are the people that I can think of in Afghanistan who were most mm. at threat. No, I get that. I get that. Okay. Um, but so I think it would make sense to say Britain needs to step up. We need to have an international refugee coalition where we actually try to work out how to take serious, sustainable numbers of people every year. I want a number. I want to say we should be taking 0.05% of our population, which is about five people in a town of 10,000. We should be doing it every year. And we should do it with France, with Germany, with the United States, with Sweden, so that there's a predictable, let's say, three, 400,000 people a year who come to the West. And we work with NGOs to identify the people who are most vulnerable. Because I do think there is something of a lottery, and there's also something very dangerous and very weird about the current system, which is so reliant on people making illegal crossings on boats. Mm. I don't, I don't disagree. Um, but you're speaking as a as a rational, humane person who thinks that politics and government exist to address problems. I'm afraid I I look at the way they handled it last week. I don't think you can divorce it from the timing of. Partygate. I don't think you can divorce it from the questions of Johnson's own survival. I don't think. I think the the, the, the gentleman asked, Owen Trotter. I think is right that as part of it is related to, to trying to sort of fire up their own base for the for the local elections. Now these are what I would call minor considerations, or should be in the scheme of things. Which I'm afraid with this government they become the major consideration, and we've seen it in so many of the schemes that they come up with, where the thing for them is the announcement of the plan. And then where does it go? And then it's and what they're doing, and we'll, I'm sure that we'll see it right through the parliamentary debate about this, is they're trying to basically say, unless you support this, then you basically just want thousands and hundreds of thousands of people to come in on boats. And you talked as well about the um, you, you, about the asylum system coming from from what happened during the Second World War. I mean, do you remember the Madagascar plan? The Madagascar plan was 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 it was shelved because of the way the war turned out. But the but the you know the the Germans at one point had a plan for the they were going to sort of you know do a deal with Madagascar to take all the Jews. Um, 
I just, I just think we've, we've, I don't know. I, I find it incredibly depressing. But the point about, I do think it's a political trap. That's why actually I've been quite, you know, I haven't sort of been fulminating in my usual way about this because I don't think it's a policy that necessarily is going to happen. I don't even think it's designed to happen. I think it's designed to send signals to people. And I'm, and I'm sure people, you're absolutely right. And I, I guess we need to go into a break now, but I, I think you're absolutely right also that the choice of Rwanda was deliberate. They deliberately chose one of the poorest countries in the world. They deliberately chose a country which is associated with the horrors of the genocide. They deliberately chose somewhere right in the center of Africa as the place to move people rather than, for example, the Channel Islands. Yeah. Because they liked the sense that, that some of their supporters uh, would see it as a sort of punishment posting. Mm. So they're pretending. Absolutely. The, uh, by the way, just before we do go to the break, um, I got lots of people saying, oh, will you, you know, of course you back the Archbishop because he's, you know, he's, he's a sort of lefty liberal God, God, you know, like you, and you don't even do God. I should, or I should explain to people, we don't do God was not meant to say there should be no religion. I'm pro-faith atheist. We don't do God was my way of shutting up an interviewer who kept asking Tony Blair one more question, one more question, final question, final question. And when he said, finally, 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 Prime Minister, can I ask you about your faith? I said, we don't do God. That was it. It was not a strategic statement. <laughs> okay. Return to that after the break. Thank you, Alison. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So Rory, our sponsors, The New European, they've got a lot of coverage on the French elections this week, as you might expect. Have you been following? Yeah, I have. Great, great articles, actually by some French journalists. There's a, there's a lady called Marion von Rettingham who's done a great article on, on Le Pen where she has Le Pen boasting about how Macron is the ideal opponent for her. Rothschild banker, went to a very fancy school, confuses Paris and Brussels, caricature of the elites. So really interesting uh, suggestion of what it might be that might help Le Pen make this a very, very close election. Back mm. to you. Well, 
If you want to get fully up to speed on Macron, Le Pen and the French election, the New European is definitely the place to go, as well, of course, as their usual excellent coverage from around the globe. And they've got a special offer for our listeners, just £1 a week for the digital subscription, £2 a week for the paper version as well. Just go to the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash rest is politics. It is their best subscription offer anywhere. So that's the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash rest is politics. And I'll post a link on Twitter as well. Now back to the show. So Alistair, we know you don't really do Easter, but, but we're assuming that you like your birthday and we've got a great birthday treat for you because <laughs> I'm coming to Britain and you're also going to be in Britain. So Wednesday, 25th of May, which is Alistair Campbell's birthday, which, how old are you going to be? I'll be 65. 65. Okay, your oh, 65th birthday. Mm. I can now announce you're going to join us at 7 o'clock in the evening at the Leicester Square Theatre, where you and I are going to be doing the rest is politics live. And there are tickets available. Anyone who wants to come along, leicestersquaretheatre.com forward slash the rest is politics live. Oh, God, I suppose I have to bring my bagpipes and play happy birthday to myself, won't I? That, that, that's the answer. That's a- <laughs> you can bring, you can, you can bring your chanter. Mm. On your pipes, there's a big problem. I'm getting more and more complaints from people with cats. Oh, they're piss. often listening to us in bed with their cats on the get bed. Get off, and they're, get they're off. Lo- they're loving the show. And then suddenly at the end, the cat screeches and heads off in the other direction. I've heard it from Cumbria. I've heard it from Scotland. No, Rory, that shows that you are not a true piper because a true piper never, ever <laughs> would repeat that on air as just part of the anti-bagpipe propaganda. Now, listen, I, talking of propaganda, I want to talk about this um, bearded Russian Rasputin lookalike, Alexander, I don't know whether it's Dugin, Dugin. or Dugan. Dugin. or. Um, yeah. But he does, if he is as influential on Putin as it is said, then it's quite frightening because he is a, he's a fascist. He's an out-and-out fascist. He thinks that war is good. Um, his vision is actually that Russia should, uh, be driven by the hatred of America sufficient to want to build an empire. He talks about an empire from Dublin to Vladivostok. He wrote a book in 1997 when we thought that the world could only get better. And in this book, it was a sort of guide to geopolitics from the Russian perspective. And he set out some very bold ambitions for Russia. One was, he felt that the, the Russian Secret Service, Service should infiltrate American public life and so, so dissent in its politics. Well, he's done pretty well on that. He had a vision that Britain should be separated from the rest of Europe. Done pretty well on that. Uh, and he said that we should try to get Central, uh, Western and Central Europe addicted to Russian oil and gas as a way of weakening them for the long term. And when you read um, the stuff that he wrote then and the stuff that he says now, it's pretty terrifying. And also, it, you know, we talked earlier in the series about how the optimism we had at the start that this maybe would sort of unite the world and so forth. He's also very well connected around different parts of the world where this sort of approach of kind of, you know, populist nationalism, and in his case, this view that Europe and Asia should come together under the Russian banner to fight America. And he's actually pretty anti-China as well, by the way. Um, so I don't know. Do you know much about him, whether he is as influential on Putin as people say? It's difficult to quite work out. He took on Putin. So, so to, just to take it back in time, um, set, set, set the details today. He's the son of a colonel general from the Russian intelligence service. Yeah. Soviet intelligence service. He was a student radical, flirted, as you say, with fascism, uh, is on record saying that he thought that the SS were onto a good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the only thing that was wrong with the Nazis was their racial policy, but that otherwise basically fascism was onto a good thing. Yeah. He's very bound up. And, and I think he's, he's kind of extraordinary sort of example of a type of politics that we don't really have, thank goodness, in Britain. I mean, he's bound up with mysticism. Mm. He's interested in Buddhism. He's interested in esoteric religions. He appears on panels with Iranian ayatollahs. You think he thinks that he thinks that physics and chemistry should be banned. Yeah, thinks the, thinks the internet should be banned. Yeah, he thinks the internet should be banned. I sometimes sometimes think there's something in that. <laughs> he's he's um, he's he's uh, also phenomenally, in a very narrow sense, learned, clever. I mean, that's part of the the appeal of the guy. He's written an enormous amount of books and read an enormous amount of books. 
Uh, he you know, writes books on Heidegger. He speaks he's, flawless English. Yep. Many, many languages. I think he's in five languages he's taught yeah. himself. He was a sort of, he challenged Putin for not being tough enough. So he was in trouble with Putin. And there was a little terrorist group that was set up in his name, which was then arrested by the, mm. by the Russians. So there's, it's not an easy relationship between him and Putin. But increasingly, he has become the main ideologue for this greater Russian vision. And for this paranoid vision that in the end, everything that the United States does is about destroying Russia. And Russia is the last great bastion against what he sees as kind of soulless, atheistical, materialistic modernism. Mm. He's, he's also a sort of, he's Russian Orthodox, but he's an old believer. So he's sort of a early 1600s Russian mm. Orthodox guy. And, and I think there's, there's, um, if you want culture war, there's a lot there, which people in Iran, some people in Egypt mm. uh, would actually find quite appealing because what you're doing is you're suggesting, and this is a very old story, that democracy is just a form of shallow money-worshipping materialism. And he's trying to stand for spirituality, mm. honor, glory, greatness, Imperial no, he, destiny. He, he, he says that democracy, human rights, and individualism are all Western constructs that have nothing to do with the Russian mind. Uh, he made, I mean, the thing about America, you know, he says America exists to control the entire world. They've planted fifth columnists and sixth columnists in every other country, and particularly Russia. And he made a speech that said, We, Russia, are the last obstacle to them becoming a global evil empire. We're going to have to spill seas of blood to stop them. And after the fallout with Putin, he said not to, sp not to support Putin is to be mentally ill and in need of clinical examination. And he did another one where he said Russian Renaissance can only stop via Kiev. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sort of, it, it, it is, of course, very, very similar. And he makes no, no secret about this. He's a fascist. And one forgets how appealing fascism can be, how in Italy and in Germany, and in fact, and a great deal of the rest of Europe in the 1930s, people were fascinated by the idea that there was an alternative to, as it were, American-style democracy, that there, there is something about soil and blood and honor and tradition uh, which can form an alternative meaning in life. And I think it, it's something that, that gets to our anxiety about the modern world. And mm. it, it is the existential fight of our time. I mean, I think now that communism has faded... The big standoff is between these forms of fascism, and there are, of course, Islamist forms of fascism. Yeah. I mean, there's a real yeah. link back from Osama bin Laden back to this kind of thinking. And Sayyid Qutb was very influenced by mm. Nazi thinking. The Islamist propagandist in the 1950s, a scholar, Muslim scholar uh, originally from Egypt. So, uh, yeah, take it seriously. And I think mm. take it seriously because if you take it seriously, you realize that there are people around Putin who do not want remotely to stop at Ukraine. Absolutely not. And, and, and do, you, do you think the Irish, for example, are even remotely aware that <laughs> these guys, I mean, he literally says from this, this is fascism has got to run from Ireland to the Pacific. And you talked about his criticisms of the, of the Nazis. He, he, he actually is on record as saying if, if only Hitler had not invaded Russia and got distracted there, Britain would have been defeated. Japan would have developed as a Russian ally against the, the Chinese. Uh, I mean, this, it sort of sounds crazy, but that's why I think the central question, given that Putin is so all powerful at the moment, is the extent to which, whether this guy is a sort of a genuine influence or somebody who just projects himself very successfully in that way. And I don't know the answer to well, that. Well, it's also, I think, I think politicians by their nature are often tempted by ideologues because even Putin is basically a working politician without much time for deep thought. Mm. Focused a lot on tactical maneuvering. You, you, I, I, and you can see it in a very minor way with uh, the way that in number 10, prime ministers have often brought in these kind of ideological figures to try to fill in. So Steve Hilton for David Cameron, uh, Dominic Cummings for Boris Johnson. Now, obviously, they're not kind of neo-Nazi fascist philosophers, but what they are, are people trying to produce a grand intellectual or ideological underpinning, which... Mm political leaders find quite reassuring. Keith Joseph did it for Mrs. Thatcher. Um, and you get the sense that because leaders are very, very busy, very distracted, have to be quite shallow, they quite like the idea that there's someone out there who can produce 
a big, hefty intellectual justification for their project. And I guess that must be the relationship of Putin to Dugan. I'm reading, by the way, I don't know if you've heard about this, Simon Cooper, Simon Cooper with a K from the FT, who's written a book called Chums, How a Tiny Cast of Oxford Tories Took Over the UK. He presents Daniel Hanan in that way, in terms of the Brexit project. Um, but it's extraordinary book. You, you actually feature in it three or four times. Is it true that you went to a lunch at a Bullingdon Club dinner? Yeah, I did. And then I resigned immediately. I was so disgusted by what I saw. Okay, thank God for that. <laughs> um, and the other thing, is it true that you were in the same house at school as Jacob Rees-Mogg? I was. Bloody hell, what a life you've led. Have you survived this awful? And then, to be fair to you, um, on page 173, shortly before the Tory leadership campaign started, Stuart produced a stirring rant that expresses some of the themes of this book better than I can. And you said, I feel there is a deep lack of seriousness in British politics. I felt it as soon as I saw us debate Afghanistan. We're not a serious country. The people debating it were not asking serious questions. There is pantomime on every side. And what is extraordinary, I read this book, Rory, I got angrier and angrier and angrier as I read it. I am absolutely convinced that these people, Johnson, Gove, I mean, they just litter the pages of this book. They played politics at Oxford University and they're still playing politics now. And they don't actually relate it to the impact that they have on people's lives. And they disgust me. Disgust. Yeah, well, I think, I think we're in a very, very shallow stage. I think we've lost confidence. I mean, this is, of course, one of the things that people like Dugan are reaching for, isn't it? I mean, they sense, he, he's probably right in sensing a shallowness, a lack of confidence, a lack of seriousness oh, yeah. in the West. Totally, totally. Should we go to questions? Um, here's one. I didn't know this. Question from New Zealand, Caro Carson. Why don't you guys bring in a sales tax on online purchases with the money going to boost high street stores. Did you know they did that in New Zealand? It's a, it's a very good idea. It's a very good idea. I mean, I think the Treasury keeps being asked this, keeps coming up with more and more complicated Treasury answers to why they can't do it. Well, can't I, do I haven't, it. Kept, haven't kept up with it. But the answer is it makes a huge amount of sense. It's, it's outrageous that uh, online retailers are able to get away. They don't pay business rates and it's totally disadvantaging. Mm. High street stores, and it's one of the reasons for the collapse of our high street. It make a lot of sense to tax these people more, but not just tax the things. I mean, actually make them pay some corporation tax. Yeah. Because it's extraordinary the way that the largest companies in the world, who are trading immensely in Britain, somehow seem to avoid paying tax. Marina Street, she's joining the Neil Kinnock Club here. Many people listening to your podcast are baffled that Rory became a Tory MP. Did he align with the party most likely to facilitate a political career? Is he actually more tribal than he realizes? So I, I keep, you know, you're pushing me on this. I keep coming back to this. <laughs> um, one of the reasons I think that I was, became a conservative in the, I wasn't a member of a political party until I entered parliament, but a lot of it was, I'm afraid, my sense of what I didn't like about Tony Blair's administration. And mm -hmm. we've talked about the Iraq war. So I was on the ground in Iraq, and I was horrified by the nonsense that was being spouted by the, the Labour government about Iraq and the incredible surreal distance between the rhetoric about Iraq or even Afghanistan and what was actually happening on the ground. And it convinced me that these were people living in abstract fantasy land, that they had no real connection to reality. Oh, Lord, I'm taking this as a full frontal assault. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> Now, of course, when I, to, to put the other side of it, when I entered the Conservative Party, I found that the Conservative Party was equally capable of amazing unreality and amazing rhetoric and fantasy. We see that every day. But my experience from 97, 2010 is a lot of what I hated about politics. I associated with the Labour Party and Tony Blair. I can now see that a lot of it is just to do with the general shallowness, shabbiness of British politics in general, and mm. probably wasn't unique to the Labour Party at all. Mm, okay, well, maybe that's, that's, we, we can, we can raise that on my birthday, May the 25th, live before an audience. <laughs> well, let's have a vote. We'll have a vote. Who thinks, which of the two governments is shallower, Johnson or Blair? I've got no doubt <laughs> whatsoever about the result. Here's one for you from High Road Protagonist. How does Rory square his opposition to Scottish independence with his belief that problems are best solved locally? Because I, I believe very strongly in devolution. I think you should get down, decentralized, give people local control. I believe in, French mayors, I believe people should be operating much more at a town level, city level. I think Scotland's problems would be helped if there was much more autonomy for the borders, which has very different issues to the Highlands and Islands, very different issues to the Central Highlands, very different to Glasgow and Edinburgh. Just 
creating a border between England and Scotland doesn't help anyone. But pushing power down to the most local level will be transformatory for all of us. Here's a question back for you. <laughs> Should political parties be state funded to reduce the financial influence of millionaires and trade unions on our political system? In an ideal world, yes. One, does that mean you're going to outlaw all other con contributions, large and small, which I think would fundamentally change the nature of our politics? Maybe that would be a good thing. Um, but secondly, the politics of our country is so disrespected and so derided at the moment, I just don't think the public are going to buy state funding at this stage. So, yes, uh, I saw that question as well. It was from Noah. And um, I, I think about it a lot. In an ideal way, if we were starting our politics from scratch, yes. But leaping straight into that, I, I think the party that brings that forward is going to struggle to get support for it. I, I'd love to do it. I'd love mm. to do it because we, we've talked about this in the past. Far too much money from millionaires coming into the Conservative Party. Oh, I totally far, agree with that. Far too much money coming into Labour from the trade unions. Yeah. And in both cases, completely warping our political systems. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, okay, here's another one from you. Finland and Sweden could be joining NATO soon. Is it the right decision for those countries, the region, the alliance? Question from Lee. Well, it's obviously the decision that they have decided to make in the light of what's happened recently with regard to Russia and, and Ukraine. I saw um, Alex Stubb, who was the former prime minister of Finland. I, we, he and I were speaking at a conference recently, and he was, he was saying that the, the dial has fundamentally shifted on this. Um, and look, how else are they dis expected now fully to protect themselves? If they th if you, we were talking earlier about the idea that Russia is not going to stop at Ukraine. If there is to be protection from those states, which up to now they've got through a kind of a sort of loosely held, not neutrality is the wrong word, but you know what I'm saying. Yep. Try not to upset both sides. Yep. Um, if they fear that actually, no, they're now in the sights of one of the big players, then why wouldn't they want to try and get protection from the other? Yeah. Although the question, I guess, which we haven't really faced is what that protection entails, because at the moment we are not really at war in Ukraine. What we're doing is Britain is quite correctly supplying a lot of weapons to Ukraine. And I think we should give Britain credit for doing that. Actually give in this, it's one of the few things I'm prepared to give Boris Johnson prime minister credit for. Genuinely, I think Zelensky feels real gratitude that Britain has taken more risk and has been out in advance and providing weaponry. But what we're not doing is fighting on the ground. And I think there is a very, very big question about whether Western countries are up for losing lives fighting Russians out on the edge of Finland or in the Baltics. And that, of course, is what NATO membership would require. And if that's what we're going to do, we're going to have to be very serious about what it would mean to fulfill those kind of obligations. Mm. On the, um, I agree with you about the provision of, uh, of heavy weaponry. Um, but I do not buy remotely this line that Boris Johnson is somehow indispensable to what's happening. I think we have a very good military, despite it being shredded by this lot. We have very good intelligence services still. Uh, as we've agreed before, Ben Wallace is doing quite a good job. I find the way that Johnson is trying to use the Ukraine war for his own personal and political ends in terms of his own survival, I find it frankly, pretty gruesome and, and a bit nauseating. It's, ridic it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, it, it's ridiculous because we're not at war in Ukraine. What we're doing in Ukraine can easily be done by somebody else. And it's also ludicrous to pretend there's, there's all this nonsense that we keep inventing in Britain. The news story is that we never get rid of a prime minister when there's a war on. Absolutely well, firstly, there's not a, first, there's not a war on. And secondly, actually, we've always got rid of prime ministers in the middle of wars. And it's one of the things that makes our democracy so rich that we never mm. try to use excuses of military emergency to trap people in place. Yeah. Can I ask a question from a doctor? Go on then. Alex Ridge. I know it's directed at me, but I'd be interested in your view. Um, do you think that where there is proven medical benefit, for example, cannabis and psilocybin in the treatment of depression, that these medications should be decriminalized? I think when there's proven medical benefit, yes. What do you think? I am, um, when I, I did a documentary about depression and, and I looked at the, the study of psilocybin and I saw the effects that it had and it was phenomenal. So I am, uh, I'm a yes as well on that one. What's your favorite spot in Scotland? Asks Gavin Seller. Mine is the Corran Ferry or Ballamartin Beach in Tyree. Lovely. Okay. Mine is the Strathern Valley, literally a land running with milk and honey. <laughs> okay. Uh, Carl's Marlston. 
If Elon Musk succeeds in buying Twitter, it would likely mean the return of Trump to that platform, unfettered, given the oxygen again to act with impunity. Do you agree this has terribly serious political implications, including a certain tilt again for president in 2024? I'm sort of in two minds about this whole free speech thing, uh, in that I, I sort of still hang on to the idea that you ought to be able to have your views out there and then and then have them challenged. But I think that Trump took it to such an excess, excess that I was kind of pleased when he was, his voice was muted. But I guess, I mean, Musk does seem to be, does seem to be saying that if he got hold of it, that's one of the things that he would do. Um, and it's obviously going to become a pretty bitter, high profile, fairly traditional takeover battle. But I don't know what I think about that. I haven't really given it much thought. I, I think Trump's return does look very plausible. I'm afraid oh, that Biden, sure. Biden has really been struggling to make an impact. Uh, I don't think Kamala Harris at the moment feels credible. Nobody really believes Biden is going to run again. I think the midterms are going to be horrendous for the Democrats in the United States. And I think there's another issue, which is that they've alienated Silicon Valley. A lot of their funding came from technology companies and people who'd, who'd made money in technology companies, and they've set out to beat them up. And now when they're looking for financial supports, the Democrats in the United States, they're not going to get it. It's actually quite similar, oddly, to what's happened with oil and gas in relation to Ukraine. Mm. All the governments that have spent the last five, 10 years beating up the oil and gas companies, complaining about them, are now very surprised that when they suddenly ask them all to increase production or go to Saudi Arabia, who they've been criticizing, or UAE, and ask them to increase production, these people turn around and say they won't do it. It's, it's a really interesting moment in global politics because you get the sense that of the real clash between idealism, right? Could be idealism about Silicon Valley or it could be idealism about oil and gas coming up against the hard realities of power, winning power. Now, Rory, a few weeks ago, we talked about, uh, I can't remember why we're talking about. It. I think it was about you were asking me examples of when I spoke truth to power. Mm. And I told the story of when Tony Blair was with Vladimir Putin at Putin's Dacha, and they were meant to do a photo call in front of the world's media. And Tony wore a coat that I described as unwearable by any public figure. <laughs> and we had a sort of stand-up argument with Cherie calling me a fascist, as it happens, because I didn't like the look of this coat. And Putin having to sort of watch on as we had this argument. And eventually I persuaded Tony that if he went out wearing the coat, that's all that the media would talk about. And, and so can I quickly just interrupt? Because it's such a lovely story. But in the middle of this, presumably the answer is Cherie chose the coat, didn't she? You'd really put your foot in it in the middle of their marriage. Well, Cherie did choose the coat. And I've since discovered it was a Paul Smith coat. Um, but anyway, this story. So we have got so many people listening to our podcast. It turns out, Rory... I talked, I talked about how eventually I persuaded one of our special branch protection guys, Moni Bar Barna. I persuaded Moni to swap coats with Tony. Mm. And Moni went straight into an Elvis impersonation while Tony walked out in this coat. And, and Tony walked away. Can I just interrupt on that too? Because Tony walked out in a coat, which when we look at it, and you're going to tell us how we can look at it more, basically <laughs> makes Tony look like he's going pheasant shooting. He looks like an amazing sort of, he looks like an upper class well, duke going out for a stride <laughs> over the grouse walks. Okay. Would you say, what we're going to do is the point is that, so you keep interrupting you while I'm trying to get to the punchline. Moni is a regular listener to our podcast. And it turns out Modi is in possession of photographs, both of the coat that I found offensive and the coat that Tony eventually wore, which is a sort of, it looks a bit barberish. Uh, Putin was wearing a fairly elegant blue coat. Um, so I think what we're going to do, we're going to put the pictures on uh, social media, both on Twitter and Instagram. We'll put them on the rest is politics tag. Um, and I think we should ask our listeners whether they thought I was being too harsh about the, the Paul Smith coat Perfect. and saying and to Tony, you every, can't wear it. We, we're going to go full Instagram on this. People are going to follow us for our fashion tips. And <laughs> the week after, we're going to show your hoodie. My, my, my Ramona of the Year hoodie. The, uh, the other, you, mentioned, you mentioned that the other thing that happened on that trip that um, Moni was reminding me <laughs> when we spoke yesterday was that there was a part where Tony and Putin got driven off into this forest and Moni and our special branch guys were in this van with about, you know, several thousand Spetsnaz guys in sort of balaclavas and with, you know, guns dripping off them. And they got driven out to this place. And suddenly the vans all stopped and didn't move. 
And Moni's asking the Russians what's going on, and they're just sort of sitting there looking, you know, frankly, like they couldn't give a damn. And then about a minute later, two very loud shots were heard. <laughs> and, of course, the one thing you're not ever meant to do is to lose sight of the principal. Well, they'd lost sight of the principal because he was in this bloody blacked-out van with Vladimir Putin, and they suddenly hear two shots, okay? In the middle of a Russian forest. In the middle of a Russian forest. And it turned out that what it was, they that Putin in this dasher in the middle of nowhere – he wanted to go and get some food for the barbecue, and he apparently he likes to see the food being shot. So they shot a, a, a wild boar, and they shot a deer, and we ate it later on the barbecue. It's a beautiful story. And if you think about it from the point of view of the protection officer, you've driven with Vladimir Putin to the depths of a dark forest in the middle of Russia, <laughs> and suddenly there are two shots, and you're nowhere near your boss. It's, it's yeah, quite it's a moment. pretty sorry, but Moni survived it, and he's now he's now retired and living happily and reminiscing with me yesterday. We had, a, we, had, we had a few good laughs about some of the stories that we can tell and many of the stories that we can't. Lovely. Well, Alistair, thank you for that one. And I think let's, let's wrap on that and be back next week. Now, next week, if I'm right, you're going to come and see me in Scotland. And we're, going to be, we're going to be recording together in Scotland. We're going to be face-to-face for the first time since we started this adventure. Lovely. Looking forward to it. Have a great week. Bye-bye. You were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts.